So thinking about the snowy day, the opera last week, and then this week, you know, I speak with Joel Thompson in the third movement about uh, writing the snowy day. Last week was the libretto. This week, it's the music. It's mm -hmm. the score. So thinking about all of that has gotten me thinking about children's programming and, you know, what that meant to me growing up and what significant programs were there that had me in front of the TV. I, I wonder if you remember what had you in front of the TV back in 19, you know, yeah, when you were, <laughs> when you were seven, eight, nine years old, the electric company, the Muppet show, oh, so the Muppet show. And they talk to me about the electric company. I don't think, is that the one that's with the, the silhou silhouettes and words yeah. being said? Yeah. Or? <laughs> you know, that's for the graduates of Sesame street. Oh, oh, so, oh, so Sesame street was for the, the kids and then electric company was for the, right. And then when you move older. past, when you move past that, it was three, two, one contact. If you were into science, what, sure. what what was was there one that like was your show like you had your peanut butter and jelly sandwich in front of the TV every Thursday Thursday morning or or whatever like what <laughs> when, when you think about your childhood and children's programming what do yeah. you think about what was significant I you? was I was in pajamas bathed and ready to watch the Muppet Show every weekend Did you yeah. have any uh, uh, favorite Muppets Yeah Kermit. Oh, Kermit, you're, you're, you're a team Kermit. Sure. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. What do you think about the way uh, The Muppet Show has evolved over the years? Do I you wouldn't... watch The Muppet Christmas Carol? Do you do all, you know? Yeah, but yeah, it's just different. No, I like the, I like the short um, sort of stage show vibe that The Muppet Show had. Yeah, I've seen all the movies, but I'm not going to sit and rewatch them. It's the presentation that you're most nostalgic I about, guess, yeah. I guess, what you're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, well, of course, uh, you know, I'm a little younger. So for me, it, nah. it's classic Nickelodeon. And uh, I just wanted to give Nickelodeon a quick shout out because over the weekend, I watched the Nickelodeon documentary. They go all the way uh, beginning with Pinwheel. And I felt like I heard you say something about Pinwheel before, this old school children's programming that I'm sure one of y'all yeah, sounds know familiar, something about. Right? Anyway, that that evolved into um, Nickelodeon. And the story was, I'm not going to break down the whole documentary, but it was just so intriguing to me. This Basically, the story was no one really believed in a network for kids. They, they didn't think it would be financially viable, and they really couldn't get the uh, Nick, Nickelodeon, they couldn't get people to sell them shows. So the first big shows on the network were dubs of Japanese and French cartoons. And when they were flashing right? Mighty Mouse, or I don't know if that Samurai Pizza Cats or whatever, you know, all of this stuff that is Japanese that we grew up watching and had no idea, but then also Canadian. They're talking about how mm. um, the show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, a, cl a classic Nickelodeon show mm -hmm. uh, was Canadian, a show called You Can't Do That on Television. I watched that. You know, so, so yeah, so I guess we have that in common because I definitely remember that uh, from, from my childhood and a Eventually, when people were seeing how financially viable it was, of course, they were, you know, uh, greenlit for more things and started producing original programming, you know, Rugrats, Doug, Ren and Stimpy, you know, Ren and Stimpy is one of those things that was pushing the envelope that is now iconic, you know, that my mom didn't like us to watch. We watched it, but, right. you know, she, we're, I need to get my soundboard here. We watched it. For Christmas one year, <laughs> my mom bought me a stuffed Ren and Stimpy for Christmas. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. nice, nice. Um, and they have they have whoopee cushions on the inside. <laughs> where, where where do those live now? The, I got them at home. Okay, they're in okay. the spare room. You, I'll bring them next time. You can see them. <laughs> oh, the whoopee the whoopee cushion sound is going to be a a part of the sounds that we may hear. <laughs> um, anyway, so I have Nickelodeon on the mind. You know, Saturday night we're watching that, and 
Um, oh, I have to mention all that, you know, shout out to, to all that, you know, kids, um, sketch comedy can't, can't beat it. Uh, then that, that gave us Keenan and Kel. I, I could, I could uh, talk about those things, those things all day. The point is I'm thinking about my childhood and, and this documentary that has laid out the beginnings of this children's network. And then yesterday, uh, the football game between San Francisco and the Cowboys, the only reason I know <laughs> The only reason I can name those two teams right now is because I saw people tweeting about Nickelodeon airing the game. And I'm like, what? Nickelodeon is has a deal with the NFL now? So I turn on Nickelodeon, of course, and I see hosts that are more colorful than your typical NFL hosts, not only, you know, just in identity and culture, but in the way they're presenting, you know, when uh, when one of the referees would call a uh, false start. You know, you would have someone say, oh, I, I just hate when people move too quickly before the whatever, you know, so they're obviously making it work for kids. You got the slime machine every time there's a touchdown and, and all of that sort of thing. And it's just interesting how one little idea, you know, can bloom into something that one of the biggest institutions in the country and in the world, the NFL, you know, now they're partnering. I think it's, it's uh, really interesting. Now, this is the thing, though. This this podcast is called Triloquy. What I needed to see, and I waited. I waited until the end of the game watching Nickelodeon. What we needed to see was some acknowledgement for Colin Kaepernick, okay? It's one thing to, you know, get a kid doing, uh, 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 I almost said stage side, field side interviews mm -hmm. after the game, you know, little nine-year-olds talking to the players. Oh, how did you feel when did a, you know, mm -hmm. that's great. I also feel like it, is you know sort of reminiscent of some sort of indoctrination into the church of the NFL teaching kids from all the way you know when they're youngsters you see this is an all american thing there's nothing wrong with it and so you know with we, we, that dust in the corners question got to go ahead were there boys or girls anchoring both okay so would you both. say it was an equitable mix or uh, I would say so. I, I hate that I don't know anybody's okay. name because answer, okay, because, answer question. Because so one, I'll go sit down. Because one of the guys was uh, either a former football player or a current football player. You know, young black guy, mm -hmm. and then you had a um, a young black woman who I think uh, is a part of a show that's on Nickelodeon now. See, I don't watch the network, but these folks were obviously Nickelodeon celebrities. And then you had. Um, uh, I guess a white guy. He, he had fair skin. I don't know what his background is. Anyway, it was a it was a good mix, and that was fun to see. And I don't know. It was it. I I sustained my feelings about the NFL because I'm thinking about Colin Kaepernick all the time, more than a lot of NFL people are. And I think it's cool that um, children's programming is is really grasping the culture in the way it is. Like I said, we're going to talk about the snowy day a little later uh, in this opus. Mm -hmm. We all know, or most of us know the song Baby Shark at this point. You know, whoever wrote that, who, <laughs> I, I need a, a, a cha-ching on the soundboard because whoever wrote that, you know, they have a few coins now and that's straight is, up children's music. Is that a bop? <laughs> it is for some people. It is for the uh, <laughs> little toddlers. Anyway, hello everyone. This is Opus 134. Uh, for this week's Downbeat, Scott, we're, we're taping on uh, Martin Luther King day so of course we have to have a downbeat from uh the man himself we're going to listen to um for this week um an excerpt from his 1968 appearance on the tonight show harry belafonte was hosting and in this excerpt martin luther king jr talks about the economic problem as the most serious problem we're facing in america let's take a listen we 
are in the midst of a most critical period in our nation, and the economic problem is probably the most serious problem confronting the Negro community, and I might say the most serious problem confronting poor people generally, and I don't want to be narrow about this, talking only about the black poor in our country, because I must be concerned about Puerto Ricans who are poor, Mexican-Americans, American Indians, and Appalachian whites. And we are confronting a major depression uh, in the poor community. And I think the time has come to bring to bear the power of the direct action, the nonviolent direct action movement, on the basic economic conditions that we face all over the country. Nonviolence has been a tremendous force. Right. You know the phrase nonviolence mm-hmm. as it applies to the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. How many times have you heard the phrase nonviolent direct action movement? First time. I feel like that is something that has just been cut off over the generations because nonviolence and nonviolent direct action are two very, very different things. I think we saw that, speaking of Colin Kaepernick, we saw that then that was direct action that was nonviolent, and you saw how folks acted. We saw how uh, we were here, you know, to see how even the most uh, peaceful, quote unquote, of, you know, uh, peaceful protests, so called peaceful protests, were stamped out and there's legislation in different parts of the country i know florida being one that they're trying to put out there to even make protest illegal Mm -hmm. so when we think about the legacy of dr martin luther king jr we have to remember the context of nonviolence. it was nonviolent direct action they were out there marching you know they were out there putting themselves in in harm's way and we 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 have to think about that We, we have to not uh, change nonviolent direct action into kumbaya, let's hold hands, we're a colorblind society, X, Y, and Z. That's, mm-hmm. that's the first important thing that I, I think we need to pull out. Um, the other thing that I think is really important to, to note from this is how non-capitalist thought began to be more and more and more of Dr. King's message and how for some people, for some institutions that smelled like communism. Mm-hmm. What did you know, uh, if, if anything, about um, sorts of so-called conspiracies when it comes to the uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.? Were, uh, have, have you uh, engaged any of those conversations as far as this being bigger than uh, Ray Charles, I forget the man's name, mm-hmm. uh, it being bigger than a lone actor? I know that conspiracies or talk of them exist around it. I haven't done in-depth research on it, no. Okay, okay. Um, I was reading a lot of things today um, where, uh, I don't know, family members, like I'm hesitating because it sounds ridiculous to a lot of people, but how family members have been on record saying uh, Ray 
was innocent because he was following a demand. He is a part of a bigger system. I'm quickly reading here from an article that I'll put in the description from National Public Radio. Um, uh, and the quote here uh, from, from one of the correspondents is, the first fear that FBI Director J. Edgar, a. J. Edgar Hoover had was that King was going to align himself with the Communist Party, which J. Edgar Hoover was obsessed with destroying. I think it's interesting how a challenge of traditional capitalist ways of thinking in the United States are quickly thrown toward communism, quickly thrown toward uh, socialism, even, even though many of us believe that that's where we need to go. Fear of something different drove the, you know, drove reactions far more than what people remember today with the nonviolence and and the I have a dream and all of those things. So I think it's really important for people when we think about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. to remember that it wasn't only uh, racial equality that he was working toward. He was working toward class solidarity. We heard right, we right. heard him in that clip talking about um, you know indigenous people, Appalachian whites, and all of that stuff. But you know at the end of the day, we can't have that that solidarity if the racism is still there. You know there are some folks living in Appalachia today that are poorer than they were back then. But we can't work together because if I go driving up those hills, I'm I'm in trouble now. Mm -hmm. You know I'm in I better go back from where I came and 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 all of that nonsense. Anyway, we have to understand all of these things about Martin Luther King Jr. So you know just to again get us started this week, I wanted to uh, make sure that we were thinking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. beyond what we were fed in school and what we were allowed to know and understand about him. I'm going to quickly read um, another one of his quotes here. Um, it says, and one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you are raising questions about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalist economy. What if that, Scott, was the quote? that y'all were reading and studying in eighth grade and 11th grade. And I think you said you took a, a, a black studies course in college or, mm -hmm. you know, what if that was the centerpiece of let's talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think so many things would be different. Do you, do you, or, or maybe not, do, do you think there would be a significant difference? Oh, I difference? think there would be. And I also understand why there's certain, excuse me, why there's certain uh, people that don't want that quote getting out. And why, and why is that? You know no, why. But let's, but why is that? Well, they can't, they can't have us all getting together in class solidarity because they can't have us realize it because then we'll up them. We're going to go and eat the rich. That's why. Period. Right. Period. So they can't, they got to keep us apart. They have to, because if we get together, then we're going to be too powerful. So what if we can figure out how to come together? And that is such a, uh, a trite thing to say and aspire toward these days because of all of the, you know, different ways that his legacy and the, and the black struggle in, in general has been trivialized. But what if, what if we can put the racism aside? What if we all, all men, black and, and otherwise, can put down the patriarchal structures and the practices and the beliefs that go along with that? What if we can put our ableism to the side, our fat phobia, all of, you know, what, what if we could really come together? We could really make this 
nation and and really make this world. It's exciting to think about. And I can just only imagine how excited Dr. King was thinking about it. You know, his last speech that he gave in Memphis uh, before uh, being assassinated, uh, the From the Mountaintop speech. You know, when I think about that speech, I think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., seeing something like climbing to the top of the mountain and seeing a future that he knows can exist, but that he knows other people don't quite see because they haven't climbed that mountain. Right. You know, so I'm just trying to climb that mountain and I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to keep myself from, from being problematic. I'm trying to climb the mountain and take this dry ass classical music industry with me because I know that we can all be changed and that we can all be transformed by rethinking everything from our capitalist structures to the way that we define classical music and everything in between. Well, we're going to get into it, um, but I'm going to read this. Every time I'm in Memphis, my hometown, I make sure to go visit and pay my respects to the Lorraine uh, Motel where the National Civil Rights Museum is where Dr. King was assassinated. In front of it is this giant plaque that uh, has a couple scriptures uh, from the Bible. They take some scriptures from the story of Joseph, the dreamer. If, if you, uh, if you, I don't have my organ music here, but if you know the story, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Joseph, the dreamer, and they take a couple of uh, those Bible verses about his brothers and their reaction to him and trying to kill him and contextualize them within Martin Luther King Jr.'s story. And every time I'm there in, in, in that space and read that plaque, it just chokes me up because I think it's so beautiful. It says there on that plaque, again, this is uh, from the book of Genesis. They said one to another, behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. They slayed him, Scott. They slayed this man who had a dream. What became of those dreams? Did, did slaying him kill those dreams? No. Did, did it squash those dreams or did it do something else? No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's think about that and let's jump in today's show. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy Opus 134. Thank you, everyone, for being here, Scott. Um, real quick, before I forget, I, I, I thought about it. I have to put some respect on Martin Luther King Day, but I thought, thought, thought about, as a downbeat, revisiting Coming to America when... One of the barbers, you know, they went down to Memphis and met Martin Luther the King, and they arguing about you ain't met no Martin Luther the King, and uh, you know, right. <laughs> so Hit you know, through through the <laughs> through the activism and through the respect and reverence we have for this freedom fighter, you know, black people, we we are not a downtrodden people, we are a joyous people. So it's also fun to <laughs> remember the ways in which Dr. King's legacy has impacted popular culture <laughs> in that way. So shout out to uh, uh, Coming to America and shout out to all of you uh, listening today to returning listeners. I owe so much gratitude to y'all. I really appreciate the way that y'all continue to engage and offer support and help Triloquy uh, remain a vital part of the music ecosystem. Thank you very much. For new listeners, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music, the idea and the concepts of classical music, and reframe them from today. We 
uh, have conversations that aren't typically aligned with so-called classical music and bring it to the front in an effort to decolonize the phrase classical music and all the culture that surrounds it as well. For more information on the Triloquy podcast and to check out uh, past opuses, uh, go to triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. You can also find out how you can donate and support in other ways on the website. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by the Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution here in St. Paul, Minnesota, that's focused on making sure artists can make a living and a life in all that we do. More information on them at springboardforthearts.org. I also have to uh, send thanks and a shout out to Maria Issa, Scott, her. Um, there's some local political drama that I won't uh, bore our national audience with, but uh, Maria Issa is now running for Minnesota House. It's no longer Minnesota Senate. It's Minnesota House after some some switching up of things, but uh, she's still here uh, uh, representing uh, folks here in uh, the St. Paul area and really centering artists and everything that she's doing from healthcare to housing. So you can find more information on her at mariaisa.org. I think I said .com last week, uh, mm. but it's mariaisa, M-A-R-I-A-I-S-A.org. And then finally, I want to thank everyone at WNYC and the Apollo for having me for your, um, I think your 16th annual Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration. Scott, I've sat on a lot of stages. I've talked on a lot of microphones. I've been in front of a lot of audiences. It is the honor of my life. And I'm not even exaggerating here. I'm trying not to get choked up, but it is such an honor for me to get to experience something that we have built together, making it to that sort of platform. Folks talk about Carnegie Hall, folks talk about Disney Hall, X, Y, and Z. The Apollo is historic and the Apollo is historic to black music and to black people. Mm. And to be invited into that space is such a crowning achievement. So I just yeah. want to thank everyone at the Apollo. I think my segment uh, was on uh, the takeaway. Uh, I have folks, from California, Chicago, everybody texting me. Oh, I hear you on the radio. Da da da. You know, I, I'm I'm grateful. I'm so grateful. I've been out of the radio profession um, for working on two years and never left the airwaves. Mm, mm, mm. Blessed. So that was uh, on <laughs> on NPR on the yeah, takeaway. It oh, was. Cool. Okay. It was. Yeah. Um, anyway, thank you, thank you to all of those folks. If if uh, the the presentation is still available, I'll be sure to uh, put a link to that in the description of this. The only greater honor I have than being invited to uh, speak at quote unquote, it was supposed to be in person, but Omarion, you know, but to speak (laughs) uh, at the Apollo, the only greater honor is having each and every one of you as guests here on the Triloquy podcast and your continued support and your continued ears. Let's get into movement one. What do you think about the word? We're going to jump right in, Scott. What do you think about the word fat? How do you feel when you hear the use of the word fat when it refers to a person? Is that something that you would feel comfortable calling a person? No, I'm very sympathetic to it because I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. Go yeah, ahead. yeah. How how body how body politics just plays a, yep. a a big role in our lives. What do you think about reframing those words? What do you think about the inner work that each and every and again, let me make sure I'm emphasizing that the inner work that each and every one of us have to do as individuals to transform those words and liberate us from the oppression and the feelings that we connect to words like fat or even skinny. Do you think we can move beyond those words being harmful and hurtful? 
better start work now and maybe generations down the line it'll stick. I don't think it's going to work in mine. Well, let's get into it. My first yeah. accidental. I'm going to give this uh, a big fat sharp. <laughs> mm. uh, I'm reading from WVTF.org. The headline is Charlottesville Opera Company celebrates soprano in fat pig. Let's listen. Well, let's uh, take a look. Uh, Miriam Gordon Stewart, I'm reading here, Miriam Gordon Stewart is not surprised that the world of opera has attracted some heavy performers. The creative director of Charlottesville's Victory Hall Opera says it takes a certain body to produce the big sound associated with the art form. But Tracy Cox, a soprano and fat activist, says fewer singers are appearing on the opera stage. Quote, that's kind of the stereotypical idea that we have in the opera singer, the fat woman with horns but in the repertoire there's nothing explicitly calling for fat singers and there have actually been fewer and fewer opportunities for us as the industry has shifted toward a more cinema uh, cinematic kind of casting which is why she was thrilled to get an email from gordon stewart inviting her to star in an adaptation of neil labut's play fat pig i'll let y'all read the rest of that have, do you know that uh playwright neil labut or labute i don't um he yeah he has a um a play called fat pig so back to uh the the original question traditionally and i think you know we can point at patriarchal structures or or, or whatever we want to point at not only is being or has being fat been perceived as a negative, the very word has been something that we we shy away from mm -hmm. as a people. We have folks out here like Tracy Cox who are are shifting that narrative and affirming the word fat not as a pejorative, but as a descriptor, mm -hmm. as a thing that some people are, just like some people are fair-skinned, some people are short, some people are tall, some people are fat. And you know, uh, Tracy and folks like her, I know a lot of people uh, in this space are working toward normalizing that word so that they can be normalized as people. You mm -hmm. see, mm -hmm. if the word fat itself is a negative, how is a fat person supposed to feel living in society when who they are is bad? I think it, you know, uh, I don't want to make a direct comparison, but I can't help but to think about the word black even, you mm -hmm. know. We, we are at black now, and there's some people that continue to critique that as a, as a racial word, as a word that we should use to uh, refer to ourselves. But I feel like the discomfort with that word even is why we had the African American, while we have the people of color, while we have, right, while we have all of these peripheral words around us. So, so anyway, I think it's really incredible that not only do we have individuals, but we have artists and so-called classical artists bringing these two worlds together to address uh, this issue. I think, I feel like we've talked about it um, before, but just to, just to go back to it, I don't want to erase anyone's experience. So I know that the word skinny is aspirational across most, I won't even say most, around a lot of culture, certainly American culture. But even that word can be harmful. Do you want to speak to that? I think that a bully or a cruel person is going to find whatever they can that is going to hurt you the most and then pound on that. Mm -hmm. Because the same people uh, that made fun of people that were fat, using it in the pejorative, yeah. were also making fun of the ones that were scrawny. 
Okay, so it sets up this idea of this really narrow area of perfection that yeah. you're trying to attain, and you're never going to get there. And if you do, they'll find something else to pick on you for. So right. yeah, I've got the same thing with, with with being thin. So maybe I need to reclaim that word. Maybe I need to have it tattooed on me, you know, daddy long legs, something like that. Hey, I mean, at the very least, it sounds like a, a really good uh, screen name. Maybe <laughs> maybe for your B account, your Twitter account where you're trolling, oh, uh, you probably have to be that uh, sounds like me. daddy long legs. 24 or something. I'm sure someone else has it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wanted to speak to that and acknowledge that in acknowledging that, I think we also have to acknowledge that across society, even the person who was picked on for being skinny has societal privileges, at least traditionally, that fat people do not. And I think that also has to be acknowledged. I was, um, I was a chubby kid like a little kid and then when i turned 12 years old i was rail thin right and people used to call me skinny i you know the 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 most i'm trying to think the most pejorative word that i heard thrown at me was manorexic like i was i was that thin and you know that's problematic because you know i actually did have eating disorder things as a as a teenager and and young adult but even through all of that I could go to the store and uh and find a suit when it came to prom, you know. I could I could run in, right. in Target and right. and buy a pair of jeans. Off the rack. And right. Yep. And those are privileges. So while we acknowledge that body politics runs the gamut, the full spectrum, I think there's even still privilege based on our society when it comes to straight bodied people. That, sure, that, I think that's, that's true. A, that's a, a, a a phrase that I've uh, heard used and uh, have have been taught. I'm gonna uh, just read a little bit more from this before we um, move on. Uh, Cox says here, uh, you know, this is my first time having a role written for me. And Matt Bowler, uh, who the one of the writers behind it, I don't throw this word around, is truly a genius. He's an incredible singer himself and a wonderful composer. So the role is in just is is just right in my sweet spot. So I'm, um, you know, huge shout out to Tracy Cox. Something, you know, I'll, I'll throw this out there since you do, you do have a theater background. Something that we can also talk about, you know, if we, if we go deeper into the conversation is that um, what I've heard from many fat people and non-straight body people is that even when they do make their way into the theater company or into the opera or whatever, they're the grandmother mm -hmm. or they're the, you know, they're never the love interest. Oh, they're, no. they're never the lead, mm -hmm. you know? So, so, you know, th these things are real. I understand that a, there are people out there that would consider these sorts of conversations a little arbitrary, but the, the, the this system, you know, this, this body politics, body hate system is very real. And what's really transformed the conversation for me and the way that I think about my own body even is the idea that I can't hate the fat on my body and not hate the fat on someone else's body. I think that's something that we need to each and each and every one of us need to think about that mm -hmm. and what that means. I can't hate what I don't like about my body and not hate that on someone else's body. So what does that mean? What does that mean about not only forget the romantic relationships, 
how does that play a role in our implicit bias when it comes to developing friendships or or choosing uh, collab artistic collaborators or you know all of these things manifest and it's really important for us to acknowledge and uh, think about. Of course it does, and I you know whenever I see other people that I look at and go oh okay here's a here's another scrawny like nerdling or whatever, um, it's solidarity. You group together, sure, you know, sure. it, you, you all try to get together and there's for that protection in numbers. Yeah. You're you know? like, I see you, brother. I love you. Right. Come on, so, let's be together. Um, <laughs> let's do this together. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that I, I hate a thinness about another person, but I identify with their plight sure. or, or perceived plight. I don't sure. want to say that everybody, I'm sure that there are people out there who are rocking the skinny jeans and loving life, but that's you know, not me. I, I think the skinny jeans have finally phased on oh, and we'll, we'll see them again we'll see them again in the future yeah i'll be <laughs> dead by that time though oh you never know but how quickly things move i mean we might go full uh full 80s again i, I feel like people have already toyed with it a see i'm bit. waiting for the retirement pants that go up to my armpits <laughs> that's gonna be good oh but see they're gonna make them cool see you yeah, can't then it'll be skinny retirement pants or no I'm, I'm saying they'll be the type of retirement pants you want but you know the ones at Macy's aren't the same as the ones at are the these gonna have or like, whatever. Like built-in depends. <laughs> you want to be old so bad. You 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 really do. You just want to be an old man. You're not old, Scott. Mm -hmm. You know Martin Luther King. Going back to Martin, not to you know make the subject serious again, but he was killed. He was 39. So think about that. So I'm I'm You're about saying to be 35. I, I should have been killed a long time ago. No, no. <laughs> I'm saying that 39 was extremely young and 51. It's not old. It's just it's just not. Walk up walk up to a I, I dare you walk up to a fifty one year old woman and tell her that she's old. Let's see what happens. I know better. <laughs> well then that means you aren't old either. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can't hate your own age and not hate someone else's age. Maybe we can <laughs> I'll try. Oh, we've chased that rabbit off the path. Um shout you out did. to shout out to uh uh, Tracy Cox, to Miriam Gordon Stewart, and everyone over there at the uh, Charlottesville Victory Hall Opera. I, I never thought I'd be, you know, it's a shame that the word Charlottesville tastes a certain way in most now. of our mouths. Mm -hmm. But I won't say but. And shout out to the Charlottesville Victory Hall Opera. We're going to transition into Scott's Accidental by listening to a performance by Tracy Cox. This is a little bit of Puccini here, a tune called Senza Mama to get us to our next Accidental. good your italian is but senza mama I, i'm i'm guessing that she's singing about the loss of of a mother i'll have to go and and, and check out that puccini opera but really really an incredible work i i, I just love I, i'll pass it off to you here in a second but i just love that there are so many conversations with the right folks in the room with the right creative minds and with the the courage of spirit to engage conversations like those we need the racial equity conversations yes of course and we need to center them we need the gender equity conversations we need the class solidarity conversations the ableist conversations the body politics conversations i'm grateful i'm filled with gratitude that we can live in a time when even 
in Western classical music, there's room to explore these things and to explore them in an artistic way. I think it's in, in, incredible. Really, really great stuff happening out there. All right, what you got this week? On my timeline, for some reason, I don't know exactly why Louis Armstrong started trending at the same time as MLK. Okay. And I saw it as somebody saying that, you know, he was a supporter of MLK and you kind of made a face when I brought that up. Yes. So I did. <laughs> illuminate me. What what how did he not exactly support MLK or the mission? So from my studying and knowledge of Louis Armstrong. Did you Google it? No. <laughs> no. I've been outside for a while, Scott. I know I'm, my black I'm history. Kidding. I'm going I'm going. Um he didn't want, long story short, he didn't want his mouth busted up. He didn't want to go on one of these marches and the white people come with baseball bats and and bust his face up because now he can't play the trumpet and, and can't make a living. So mm -hmm. maybe, first and foremost, that says a lot about the, the racial eco ecosystem he was living in, mm -hmm. how he knew it wasn't safe for him out there. Um, I make a face because it's it's hard for me to, it's, it's hard for me to put a, a job or work or money. I know that that's a privileged position I, I'm in, but it's hard for me to put that before racial equity, but b before marching with King, but I wasn't there and I wasn't Louis Armstrong, so I'm not judging, but it's just an interesting bit of his history. There was also some spice on that quote though. He said that they would beat Jesus if he was black and marched. Yeah, yeah they would. Not and and that's why earlier I asked you what the effigies and such in your church growing up were like if they mm -hmm. were white figures or black figures or whatever. Yeah, because, there weren't any in mine because he was railing but, yeah. against the the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus depiction, right? right? Justin, uh, Jason Caviezel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, okay, but um he also had something to say about um josephine baker she had moved over to paris came back for something in 1951 complained about her treatment at the stork club mm -hmm. and went off about it and louis said something along the lines of she's going to get everybody riled up and then le get her bag of money and then go back over to paris and leave us out here twisting in the wind right and again i wasn't there if I was sitting at the table, I would have told Louis Armstrong, listen, these folks don't need Josephine Baker. Don't blame the woman. These folks don't need Josephine Baker to be out of control. They're out of control now. So don't blame that on them or don't blame that on her, rather. That's what that's what be my response to that. Well, I, I think that he knew that, that there was that aspect, too. He also talked about the fact, I think that he knew where he was strongest. You know, you talked about right. not. Right. You talked about not marching in the George Floyd protest because you felt that your power was in, behind a microphone or think something you might right, write. Right. And this, and that's why I don't, th that's why I honor Louis Armstrong, despite, you know, s some of the, uh, we didn't give it an accidental, the, the mix of feelings, maybe a natural, we'll sure. a natural, the, mm -hmm. the mix of feelings that I feel because yes, in May of 2020, I, I really had to make the decision. Am I going to, Go out there and march in solidarity with something that I believe in at the bottom of, in the bottom of my soul or not. And 
my what I came to was that a we have to remember COVID was actually scary back then. So you know we don't apparently we don't care anymore CDC or anybody. But back then, you know, in May of 2020, that was something that I was thinking about. But also I recognized that, and I was still at NPR at that point. I recognized that my voice would reach further and was more impactful and more powerful behind that mic than in a crowd on the street. And if something happens to me or if I go to jail or something, I don't have the opportunity to reach the millions of people that I can reach otherwise. So I connect that to Louis Armstrong. He may have felt a way. And I think, I guess, uh, reducing it to, oh, he didn't want to bust up his chops is sort of unfair because there was work that he was doing on those stages. I think the uh, the global work, it wasn't just in the United States, but the things that he was saying and the message this messages that messages that he was putting through in his music, that meant something. And they wouldn't have, you know, meant as much or meant anything if he wasn't in the physical shape to do it. So I get it. I right. get it. It's a both and sort of thing for me. And he was doing it for a paycheck. Right. I mean, because he in, in this piece that I found in the, the New Yorker, which I'm sure that you'll share, they cite a uh, 1964 profile in Ebony where he says, I didn't socialize with, socialize with top dogs in society after a dance or concert. These were the same people that would go around the corner and lynch a Negro. Right. And he talked about um, uh, with President Eisenhower, he went up against, he spoke out against him saying he was two-faced, no guts. So it wasn't like he was pulling punches. Yeah. Right. Um, he said it's getting almost as bad as a colored man, and I don't like saying that word either. Mm-hmm. Um, hadn't gotten has hasn't got any country. His comments made network newscasts and front pages, and the AP reported that the State Department officials had conceded that Soviet propagandists would undoubtedly seize on Mr. Armstrong's mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That, 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 I'm just trying to suss this out to yep. get a, a better feel of it because uh, I know that he has a reputation of being um, the the white man's jazz player. At least he had that in his own era, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I, am, what, am I wrong? I, no, yeah, I'm sure that, I'm sure many people said that back then. I'm, I'm only giggling because I won't even say those words today. I mean, because he, he is up there. You know, when we talk about Duke Ellington, when we talk about um, Fats Waller, mm-hmm. I was playing the record today. One of them you got us, got me, got us for Christmas, Kind of Blue. Oh, that was Miles Davis. Miles Davis. Oh, yeah. You know, we have all of those people. Louis Armstrong is at the top. Yeah. Louis Armstrong is Hove. Louis Armstrong is is Biggie. You know, he's he's up Beyonce. You know, he's up there. So it's, it's interesting how, you know, wine wine ages and and so do the the work and legacies of of, of many artists as well well i'm a huge fan and i have yeah, been since um i was announcing jazz overnights when i was in my early 20s and i think that it's important to understand his story as well in that there are different places in this fight where you can be doing the work right and you and you know you have to do you have to fight your fight right the thing is we can't use capitalism and our job and all of those things as an excuse. If you don't want to go out and march, that's fine. That's your prerogative. What are you going to do? Being a good person is not doing something. We're talking about, what do we say? Nonviolent direct action. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. I had the privilege of having direct action off the streets. Louis Armstrong had that same privilege. You have that same privilege. 
we have a responsibility with that privilege. At the same time, I challenge folks who don't have huge public facing platforms to think about how you can engage that, that direct action, instead of using, oh, well, I, I don't wanna get in trouble with my job or extra incremental change, blah, blah, blah. Instead of getting mixed up in all that, I just encourage everyone to think about how that direct action can happen in a, in a similar way, because I think in some part of our lives, each and every one of us has a place where we can apply that that's, for yeah, sure, I, every yeah, single one of us. That's what I wanted to do is just highlight the fact that there are people working at different levels and- Because because unless I can go sit at any of y'all's uh, grandma and, and peepaw's table at Thanksgiving without a problem, mm -hmm. y'all got some work to do. Right, right. <laughs> All right, let me go, <laughs> let's, hmm. let's move on uh, to transition into, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I I know that I can sit at your father's table and that's fine. I hope that wasn't that's that's why I was laughing. I wasn't talking about your family. I didn't take it. <laughs> um, to transition into our uh, final accidental for the first movement, uh, tune I want to bring in uh, actually Caesar. Uh, Cesar Chavetta, shout out to uh, Cesar. He taught me about this tune. I'm gonna have to have him back because he's also a Louis Armstrong expert. So I'll have oh, to he? I'll have to interview him about Louis Armstrong. But anyway, this is a tune that. To go be, ahead. Yes, and to be clear, I did not call Louis Armstrong corny. <laughs> yes, this, you better make that clear. This was no, no, no. This <laughs> this was sort of the, the reputation that he had gained. That he was, you know, the the he had changed. He he was playing for the white right. audience solely for the white we'll audience. Give you another natural there because yep. that's what they said. Scott, right. Scott said, don't, don't come for me. Mm -mm. <laughs> anyway, uh, this song that Caesar taught me that I want to share with y'all is called Black and Blue. Just the idea that, you know, back, especially back in those days, you can be so black that you blue. It gives you the blues. Anyway, here's a little bit of this to get us to our final accidental. Old empty bed Springs on his lid Feel like old men Wished I was dead what did I do to be so black and blue? Mm, even the mouse ran from my house. They laugh at you and scorn you too. What did I do? To be so black and blue. Listen, <laughs> we talk about some music. You know, mm -hmm. mo most folks with music degrees, much less so-called lay music people, have never really dug into the catalog of Louis Armstrong. This is, um, let me see, does it say a year here? Uh, 19, originally released 1956 mm -hmm. by Sony. So back in 1956... You had a man on stage saying, what did I do to be so black and blue? Just just the mouse run from his house. You heard what the man said. Mm -hmm. It's it, the depth of what I affirm as American classical music is astounding. You know, just revisiting pieces of music like that. Think about the radio breaks that you could create, or if not you, that I could potentially create surrounding a piece of music like that. The way that a listener could be engaged, not only thinking about how that conversation applied back then in 1956, but how we still black and blue in the year of 2022. It even right. rhymes. Right. <laughs> right. Anyway. Shout out to um, Louis Armstrong. Rest in power to one of the greats. All right. One quick... One more quick uh, accidental. We're going to have to go for the flat. 
And I'm gonna just give it a little bit of that as well. I'm sure you saw it. A lot of people got a letter from an organization called the Society for the Preservation of Western Music. I think the jury is still out whether or not they're trying to build something or if these are just some trolls. But um, basically in the letter, this organization um, reached out to some folks, not me because they know better. Uh, if, are you uh, interested in supplying some content, some essays or whatever for uh, their publication, the SPWM Voice. Let me read this organization's mission statement. This is founded in 2021. Society for the Preservation of Western Music seeks to actively promote canonical masterworks of the Western classical tradition from antiquity to the present day. Begun is small font. Sorry, I'm uh, reading funny. Began as a consortium between a dozen composition and theory faculty across the United States and Canada in response to the virulent spread of identity-based concert programming, SPWM currently boasts a roster of over 100 members, staunch advocates for the foundations of our traditionally Western artistic practices. Scott, take it away. Our traditionally white artistic president? Is that what I said? Is that what I said? Is that what I said? Or is that, or is that what they meant? That's what I heard. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway. These white men are dangerous. What are your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I haven't pressed that button in a long time. Don't <laughs> don't do me. Social media reaction. The temperature, at least on my timeline, has been just they're ridiculous. This is fucked up. You know, ignore them. Whatever. Mm-hmm. What is what is what what is your response to reading this? To this, your response to this so-called organization. You're a person with a voice and with a platform. If they find themselves in your inbox, what are you going to say to them? Oh, I, <laughs> I don't think so. But yeah. I um look, I I didn't read it. I heard you. And that's the uh, that's all that's on the and, letter. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. It looks from where I'm sitting, it looks like it goes on a little bit longer. Okay. This, this, this top um, part is just the invitation to write for us. Yeah, I think that I think that Judd Greenstein's take on it was the best. That it's you know, it, all the systems in place now already do this. Um, what are the? I don't know what they're scared of. Well, you I mentioned mean, Judd Greenstein. So for the folks who don't know, let, let's read what his response was. But again, this is a, a very influential contemporary composer, big on uh, social media. His response, and I agree with his response. And before I read this, this this was also what I'm about to read was also my response. Mm-hmm. And I definitely tweeted as such. I think he put it a little clearer uh, than, than I did. Judd Greenstein said, the entire classical music industry is already a society for the preservation of Western music. And we have to ask, what exactly is the difference between the agenda of that incoherent racist so-called society and what classical institutions implicitly support every day is a conspiracy hiding in plain sight. We all know it. We just tolerate it. Maybe this asinine racist trolling will backfire and fewer people will tolerate it going forward, which brings me to to my point in sharing it and even talking about it here on Triloquy. There are people who are like, oh, you can't feed the trolls. That's what they love and da-da-da and blah, blah, blah. I agree with Judd in that what they're uh, purporting in this in this letter and in this invitation to writers is what the classical music is, a centering right, of, right. you know, and dare I say, identity-based centering of white men from Europe, at least aesthetically, you know, right. centering the aesthetic of all of these men, okay? 
I believe that sharing this thing and, and talking about it uh, in public platforms and amongst our colleagues and friends helps inspire the thought in more classical professionals' minds that what you fight against, push against, oppose in word, you are with completely in action right. and in right. profession. Mm. I mean, do, what do you think? Is is it better to not feed the trolls, not to make this a, a public thing, or to raise awareness about it to that point? Yeah, I'm of two minds of it. I think that for myself, I have to not give them, I have to not read it or not all of it or not give them airtime just to save my own psyche mm -hmm. because I don't like thinking that that is out there. Yeah. And that's probably to my detriment. But I, I'm let me say this. I'm glad that other people are talking about it and making sure that it's out there so that uh but again so that it is stopped. But you see the thing is is that if I spend too much time on that, I'm gonna be a basket case. I hear you. I hear you. But even, you know, and what you and, and the way you just said that, you know, you hate to think that this sort of thing is out there. It's not only out there, it's the most pervasive way of thinking in our field. The, the censuring of those European aesthetics as classical music. You can point to this as a reason why a podcast like this one exists. Amen. So, um, Ashe. so how about if we, we go ahead and give it a little bit of air so that we still have things to talk about? Well, it's, 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 um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> don't, don't get me together. Um, if y'all want to read it, it's, it's on my Twitter. I have, you know, they only tell you your number of notifications up to 20. So I'll, I'll, I'll have to deal with that later. Cause I'm sure people got something to say, but, um, we we have we we can't let the sleeping giant the sleeping dragon just be there because that's how we got our last president mm. first that's that's the first thing i say to people when they when they talk about oh don't feed the trolls no ignoring the troll is how one got in the white house mm. <laughs> so first of all so that and we have to be strategic. We have to understand why we're sharing things and make sure that there is a message and a goal behind it. My goal with giving this nonsense some air is to help people think about the fact that this is how the classical music industry is, whether you see it or not, whether you want to admit it or not. And for, you know, folks who work in the profession, even on the performance leg of it, certainly also the administrative leg of it, you're you're complicit. So what are we going to do? Again, direct action, nonviolent direct action. That's the theme for this week. Uh, to get us out of this and into the second movement, we're going to hear from Josephine Baker. You mentioned Josephine Baker earlier. I want to bring her up because we think about the I Have a Dream speech on Martin Luther King Day, right? Mm -hmm. Josephine Baker was there. Mm -hmm. She spoke at that rally. She was the only woman to speak at that rally. And I feel like that's a fact that a lot of people don't actually know that toward the end of her uh, life, maybe not the end of her life, but the end of her career, you know, after all of the, the showgirl stuff, you know, she was an advocate. She worked for the French government, um, being a spy in X, Y, and Z hmm. and was invited, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. had to bend over backwards with the embassies and all that stuff to get her over here, the passports and all that so that she wow. could speak at this thing. So that's a very important bit of history that we always need to remember and make sure we don't forget. So in celebration of Madame Josephine Baker, we're going to hear a tune of hers uh, as performed live back in 1973 called The Times Are Changing, because that's why these organizations are scared in the first place and putting all this nonsense out, because they see that there is change happening. They're trying to push against it, and we're going to continue to push back. Times are changing, as performed by Josephine Baker. Well, 
And that went down in Carnegie Hall. So I guess okay. Carnegie Hall has uh, been putting some so-called diverse talent on the stage for, for decades now. So There's your in, proof. In this case, <laughs> shout out to Carnegie Hall. We're in, <laughs> we're in the second movement uh, where Scott and I take the second ending. Uh, we take a piece of music that we've been listening to and thinking about over the weekend. Instead of fully revisiting it in its entirety, we take the second ending and talk a little bit about why we have been listening to it. I'll get us started this week, Scott, with music. By the one and only Duke Ellington. I'm not arguing it with anyone anymore. I'm just stating it. Duke Ellington is an American composer of classical music, despite the aesthetic that you want to attach to it. That's number one. Number two, (laughs) I was not always there as a professional. So in my more colonized mind days, especially the very opening, like opening months of my uh, career in radio. This is a piece of music that I wanted to air, but had questions about, should I put this on the radio? Uh, I don't know if these white people are going to get mad at me for this jazz sound and stuff, X, Y, and Z. I have the receipts. You can go way back in the in the archives and look. I, I, I would play the piece of music, but I always felt a way. Uh, like I was getting myself in trouble or something. So anyway, what I, I mentioned that to say, as we continue to have these conversations, we're going to open up classical spaces, uh, classical radio and, and all of that stuff to not only more diverse music, but more opportunities to connect the art form with what's going on. So Duke Ellington wrote this piece of music called Three Black Kings. It's a three movement orchestral work that honors uh, King Balthazar, which is, uh, you know, that I believe that King uh, that was hanging out with Jesus Nim in the manger. The, uh, you know, one of them is always black. Right. Uh, <laughs> correct me that if I'm wrong. That was Balthazar? Yeah, I believe okay. so. Correct okay. me if I'm wrong. Um, one of them was uh, King Solomon from the Bible, you know, a, a man that if you read the, the good word, you know, you can affirm as black. I won't go into that today. Um, and the third king that he was honoring was King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, so we're, I, I want to share a little bit of this. I do the the third movement is the movement movement and written in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. But I want to share a little bit of this opening movement as well um, because it's subtitled King of the Magi, and it has this really cool like percussion beat going on that reminds me of connections to the motherland and everything that these great composers were trying to do for black people back in those days. first movement again it it has a lot of that um you know certainly then it i'm sure it sounded very contemporary but to my ear has more of that so-called traditional orchestral sound and that's how we sort of look back into the past and, and think about the history and then you get to the third movement where duke ellington writes about martin luther king and oh you can hear what ellington thought about martin luther king in this third movement just easy breezy 
just somebody who could not be bothered by any of this stuff. I know I'm a freedom fighter. I know I'm out here uh, making these speeches, but at the end of the day, I'm a black man. And black is beautiful, black is joyous, and black is easy breezy. That's what I hear when I listen to this third movement. Tell me that ain't just cool. Just cool sound in orchestral music. It's perfect for late night, low light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even <laughs> like think about it. I always think about radio programming and the and the where things can fit. I'm not saying it would be bad for morning, but again, think about that hard day at work. And think about getting in your car and you hear a radio host that maybe has a nice, soothing, silky, velvety voice or something. And he talks about, you know, I know it's hard out there. It was hard for Martin Luther King Jr. as well, Martin Luther King Jr. But you know what? Duke Ellington was a man who saw more than the stress out of this man. And right now, I see more than stress in you. Here's the third movement of Duke Ellington's Three Black Kings, music written in honor of Malcolm, uh, not Malcolm, Martin Luther King Jr., whatever I would say on the radio. I'm this, this is off the top of the head right now. Oh, see, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, I make, I'm doing my best to make a case. You just <laughs> ruined this. my joke. I was about to say, do you have anybody in mind? And then you <laughs> laid it all out like you did. Yeah. Anyway, Duke Ellington, Three Black Kings. Go check it out, especially that third movement. I've really enjoyed spending some time with it this week. Where are you, where, where you going to take us this week? Mine, Something jazzy? Mine is on the jazz tip. Yep. Um, up at work, whenever Sean McPherson is working at The Current and I'm on the air, we go into the airlock once an hour and do some sort of exercise. We do planks, crunches, jumping jacks, et cetera, et cetera. And he's big in trivia. And he came in one night and he says, what country after the United States is jazz the biggest, is you know uh, the best for jazz or has some of the best jazz? Mm -hmm. And I said, France. And he was way confused by that. And I said, well, if you, you know, not just the, the orchestral composers, you know, your Ravel or WC that had elements of, of jazz in their work, there were loads of expats. There were loads of uh, black players and musicians, artists of all kinds mm -hmm. went over to France because it was a, a much more favorable environment for them at the time. Yeah. And the musicians and composers there took on that aesthetic readily. Right. You know, they, right. they really loved it. And there was a style that developed from it called uh, that um, I always heard it as hot club. It has sort of a um, sort of a and you know when Sean put this question up on his uh, Twitter feed, I was backed up by about eighty percent of the respondents. That <laughs> because oh, yeah, he, most people were recognizing France as right. Yeah. Well, he was you know he was going to go like the Cuba direction, sure, you know, or other Latin countries, which mm -hmm. you know of course there. It, it depends on there. how we talk about the word jazz and all that. That that's a bigger conversation. You than said we'll have France today. was the white response. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying. You know, we think about France when we think about French food. We're thinking about some of the best 
food in the world, right? At least, you know, for, for the Eurocentric folks out there. Mm. So they know how to recognize something flavorful and fresh and just seasoned. And that's what I feel like they saw in jazz. Of course, we can talk about um, Mio and Ravel and mm-hmm. all those people, the way even Stravinsky, uh, he, 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 he uh, dabbled in, he wasn't French, but so we can, we can talk about the French people, Boulez, who, who engaged jazz. Right. I, uh, I just, you know, have to make it clear that jazz did not need France. I just have to, I just have to say that sentence. France did not affirm jazz. It didn't need its affirmation. And jazz had and continues to have a very comfortable home over there in France. You know, even today, uh, uh, remember when we interviewed uh, Davu Seru? Mm-hmm. Davu mm-hmm. was talking about the time he spent in France doing improvis- improvisatory work and all that. So it's, it's still very much a thing. So, yeah, the relationship between France and jazz is... Uh, so that had me... All li- that to say... Yeah, that had me listening to... Uh, two names, uh, but one in particular. Stefan Grappelli is a jazz violinist, but mainly in the guitar realm, you have Django Reinhardt, who's a, a Belgian-born uh, French jazz guitarist that um, in a, uh, a fire, he lost the use of two of his fingers. So he had to give up violin mm. and banjo both. And he's sort of pioneered his own sound, his own way of playing with just three fingers on the on the fingerboard. And uh, Nuage is the uh, track that I wanted to bring in. Nuage as in cloud? That's right. Nuage. Let's take a listen. cafe vibe to it yeah that that music just reminds me of vacation <laughs> I, I, I understand the indoor nature of jazz maybe even jazz of of that aesthetic i'm thinking about the cafe that's out on the sidewalk or maybe on sure. the sidewalk next to the beach sure and I, I don't smoke cigarettes anymore i'm i'm smoking a joint out there in france um you know sipping on a uh, on an espresso because you know it takes french people all day to sip an espresso. They take their time with everything. Maybe there's some cheese out there or something. Of course, I'm dressed fabulously. This is France. <laughs> if I ever go to, you know, I, I've, I've been to France. Paris is kind of, I'm not going to shit on Paris on my podcast. All I have to say is that the way that they say New Yorkers are rude, that's what I experienced there. But anyway, mm. um, that's what that music takes me to. Really, really yeah, that's 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 so cool and so that, smooth. That hot club kind of sound, you know, with the guitar out in front, um, brushes on the drums. Yeah, it, it, to me, it has that sort of cabaret vibe. Yeah, let's get let's get just a, a taste a taste more of that, like a good wine, a taste more of this. All right, you know you know what I feel. That's that's some classical music there. That's not American classical music, but that's American inspired classical music. If that has roots to jazz and jazz has roots to the Negro spiritual, which 
we both affirm mm-hmm. as America's classical music. Mm-hmm. We're talking about classical music now. So put it on the radio. All of those music programmers out there, gatekeepers, overseers, maybe you can even tell your own overseer to... Uh, overseer. <laughs> anyway, let's get into the third movement. So this week, <laughs> this week um, I'm, very, I'm honored. I'm honored to have Joel Thompson here. When we, when I, when we were conceptualizing, Scott, what Triloquy could be, you know, three years ago at this point, because it was about five months of production and conversation and that before we could actually get it going. So mm-hmm. about three years ago this time, when we're thinking about three years ago, I think, uh, you know, who would be some great guests for Triloquy? And of course, Joel Thompson was one of the first names to come up. So I'm so honored and so thrilled to finally uh, be able to feature him here. If you don't know who Joel Thompson is, he's a brilliant composer, a great thinker of not only Black music, but Black literature and he is the composer behind an opera that premiered last month, The Snowy Day. Last week we talked with the librettist, so this week I thought I would bring in Joel to talk about uh, writing the music for this joy-filled, non-traumatic opera. Um, While we don't talk about um, his most famous piece of music in this interview, The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, we do start with uh, a conversation sort of about how that sort of reputation can, you know, be helpful or harmful. And, you know, how does he traverse uh, his most famous piece, the piece of music that people define him by um, as, you know, being a piece that's filled with so much tragedy and hurt and and trauma. Um, My life changed when I saw the performance for the first time at an annual uh, Sphinx convening that was back in 2017. So to get us into our conversation, instead of hearing an excerpt from the seven last words of the unarmed, we're going to listen to a bit of the music that closed out that concert that just sort of put a button on the trauma we were hearing and filled us back with hope, maybe even those dreams that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had so long ago. So here's a little bit of that performance from uh, the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra in 2017 to lead us into my conversation with the esteemed Joel Thompson. snowy day is now out into the world i yeah. feel like i i i understand my the the association that's being made between not only the piece and myself but also the subject matter and it's very easy for systems to put me into that box right um, even though i i must acknowledge that um you know, I, this is hard for me to admit, but I'm, I'm, I'm good at expressing 
things on that side of the, the emotional spectrum mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason, maybe just out of practice or sort of <laughs> dwelling in that sort of uh, emotional space um, <laughs> myself as a, as a human being. But um, Snowy Day gave, gave me a chance to not only um, express another part of the emotional spectrum, the more positive side, but also to challenge myself to live in that space. And for that reason, um, working on the piece was a, a sort of healing endeavor for me. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder uh, if you could sort of paint a picture of the very beginnings of creating the music for the snowy day. I imagine step one or one of the first steps was taking a look at the at the book that inspired it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I I had remembered um, reading it as a child myself growing oh, up. Oh, really? Opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I was in a in a tropical climate, um, I still remember reading that book. And um, I didn't really experience my first snowfall until like real snowfall until after I accepted this commission. So I had a, a I could tap into a sense of wonder myself. And that I was unfamiliar with this, you know, meteorological phenomenon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess the, the the first thing for me was, yes, reading the book. Um, and also in this process, um, getting Andrea's libretto. I mean, we, we discussed um, what we would like to accomplish before to make sure that we were writing the same opera, which is an essential part yeah. in establishing a creative team. Um, and... Yeah, we 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 knew what we wanted to say. Uh, I saw her words, and they they're imbued with a sense of wonder and whimsy and and light. Um, and so I just tapped into that, and musical materials started, and I I did my job. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting that you uh, mentioned the tropical climate that you grew up yeah. in, because I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. It would be easy for folks to approximate Peter to you, but I mean, that wasn't an experience of yours as a child, you know, experiencing this snowy day. I wonder if there were other aspects of Peter's character or any other character that uh, you could see in yourself, despite, you know, you're not experiencing snow as a kid. Right. Um, I think Peter's introspective nature, um, the way in which he you know, the, the book seems to be a lot of Peter figuring out cause and effect. You know, mm. uh, he would hit a tree and snow would fall on his head. He would fall down in the snow and make snow angels. He would take a stick and drag it through the snow to make tracks. And he's seeing how his existence is interacting with the natural world in an urban setting, um, uh, but still with the natural world. Um and I feel like I was like that as a kid, curious, um, wanting to explore uh, not only the world around me, but also who I was, who, who I am. Um, and so Peter's undergoing that same sort of exploration throughout the the book. And I definitely tapped into that because I still feel that I exercise um, those muscles, those skills uh, to this day as a composer. So. 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe having to tap into uh, Peter's story and your own story and 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 finding similarities uh, can be considered uh, an an advantage. This didn't premiere in Alaska or here in Minnesota, where it's very <laughs> snowy today. You know, you had to tell this story to Texas children and and Texas <laughs> yes. parents. I, I I wonder if uh, the place it premiered played a role in your approach. Yeah, for I think. There was, I, I think it did play a role um, in, in my approach and also in the production design as well. A lot of the, I mean, Andrea's words uh, in the opening uh, aria that Peter sings when he sees the snow is um, mm-hmm. he sees the snow falling, uh, creating blankets and sheets on the sidewalks and streets, that that little rhyme there. Um, he's creating this metaphor of the snow being a blanket or a sheet that he's, you know, he's covered in blankets and sheets on his bed as he sees um, blankets of snow outside. And for that reason, um, Omer Benciadia um, and Amy Rubin, who did the set design, mm-hmm. made the snow that was on stage look like blankets um, and sheets. And so for that reason, the set is really a product of Peter's imagination Um and that also represented the sort of work that we wanted to invite the Texas audience to do, because yeah. I'm sure, you know, snow is not a common occurrence for them. I mean, there was a freeze last year and, you know, right. the whole political <laughs> brouhaha around that. But yeah, they had to use their imagination and imagine that these sheets that they see on stage looking like snow where it was actual snow. The snowballs themselves are made out of origami and they were combustible and would explode on impact. And um, so these the, the creative ways of representing this sense of wonder by not having it being rooted necessarily in reality or some approximation thereof, but really requiring imagination in order to engage with the work. Um, I think that was an essential role, an essential part of the production design, but also just, you know, for me as a (laughs) person of Southern climes, um, (laughs) presenting this story of snow, uh, yeah, it was a necessary leap I had to take. (laughs) Yeah, you know, know, something I also find really intriguing about the book and, and the opera is that it's very much a Black story, even though race isn't a character in it. Blackness isn't something that we directly speak to. With that said, you can't deny the blackness of grease in a child's cheeks when they walk outside, <laughs> for example. So, you know, at the same time, there were words that were very black. I wonder if there are aspects of the score that speak to that. Oh, from from your perspective, are there um, black notes or, or, or black <laughs> aesthetics that you infused into this? I mean... Um... I wrote it. (laughs) Well, there you go. All the notes are black. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, there's, um, I, I wanted it to be as, I think an aim I have anytime I'm writing is to have it be as honest as possible. And a lot of the music that I associate with my own sense of whimsy is not contained within the classical music box. So Mm -hmm. there were a lot of sort of, jazz-inspired textures and and melodic turns. Um, Peter's aria starts with basically a walking bass um, and some sort of jazz vibe chords, some chordal harmonies Mm -hmm. and and such. And so um, 
yeah, there was, there was, <laughs> there, for me, I, I found a way to infuse myself and I am black. And so I think blackness found its way into the music. Um, yeah. But I, I, I didn't, even though Ezra Jack Keats wrote the book and did not emphasize Peter's race for whatever reason, it was more show rather than tell. And I mm-hmm. felt like I wanted to take that same approach musically, not to minimize blackness at all, um, but I mean, it's, it's there. You just have to look at it. <laughs> you have to yeah. see it. You have to experience it. Yeah. So. A, a similar idea, uh, that I've been thinking about since I watched the opera, uh, is the children's aspect of the music itself. When we think about children's music, we typically think about things that are very simple, maybe in one key things that a child could sing along with. I wonder, uh, what what role that idea played in creating what ended up for my for, for my ears ended up being a very complex score you know the the balance between music for the tried and true opera fan and music for the child and opera for all as it's subtitled you know right yeah i for for me um opera as an art form um, lends itself to big emotions and those emotions are complex and um, one might say that you know it's a children's opera so therefore one has to not dumb down I feel like that's too crass right. but to sort of to, to simplify things but really as a child I remember having big emotions maybe emotions is big enough to fit the canvas that opera provides so I didn't shy away from the I don't know the the complexity of that expression um Mm. I really leaned into it I think but at the same time I had it rooted on a very simple motive um there's just a da 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 you know one two three one five and uh that motif saturates the entire opera so um you know when we went to schools to sort of get houston children to be excited about this opera and try and invite them and provide tickets and all that stuff all that stuff um we had them singing that simple five note theme um so regardless of the complexity that they would eventually experience in the opera they could still have something tangible to hold on to um and maybe their heirs would be able to track it as it transformed from scene to scene. Um, so try to approach it at different angles, not necessarily simplifying my music in order to fit, you know, a children's opera box, um, but at the same time providing a musical kernel, a musical seed that uh, a young listener could take away and still feel some sort of tangible connection yeah. to what they experienced. I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to uh, the audience development process going into these schools. You weren't in front of uh, rich donors. You're in front of children. Surely that made the the process of audience development even more fun or maybe even more meaningful. Yes, definitely. I think um, it. Yeah, I I, that part was really important to me. Um, I. You know, I'm about to have my the last semester of school ever. <laughs> of course, we're <laughs> hopefully um, starting in, in, hopefully uh, in, in January in my my DMA, and um, I, I think about the the journey that I've taken to this point, and um, 
how meaningful it would be for me to have seen someone like myself at that age when we we're looking at third and fourth graders in in art specific magnet schools in mm-hmm. Houston that we were visiting. Um, I it wasn't lost on me how important that moment was for everyone in that room to see a black composer and a black librettist collaborating to bring a story that centered blackness um, onto onto an opera stage. Um, And just to see that it's possible, you know? Um, And, you know, no shade to Yale or anything, but like (laughs) the one, (laughs) um, the, the one, you know, black professor I had for the majority of my time here was the jazz professor. And I took classes with him twice. (laughs) Um, But there was no one for me to see, like, this is possible. Like this, Mm -hmm. this thing that I'm pursuing is not a pipe dream. And so just the the simple (laughs) being there and saying like, this is what can happen was really important. I didn't study a black composer in my course of study in either music history or music theory sequences until 2019 (laughs) when we looked at George Walker um, in Hannah Lash's class of music after 1960. And so I, that idea of going into schools and saying, look at what we can do with this um, art form was really important to me. And it was, in terms of audience development, it's something I'm definitely committed to as I seek to stay in this operatic space for some time. Uh, I want, opera itself has a lot of baggage yeah. <laughs> as as a genre, um, but I think counterintuitively, it, it um, makes it a space that's ready to be dismantled and rebuilt. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm committed to being a part of that process. And I think audience development, as you as you termed it, um, expanding who gets to interact and see these stories and hold these stories um, is important to me for sure. Yep. You're, you're mentioning opera's baggage reminds me of a question that I asked Andrea. I'll ask you as well. When uh, the, the, when the mother is getting Peter ready to, to go outside, you know, and, and she sings that beautiful aria, um, I couldn't help but to, maybe it's my own baggage coming up, but I couldn't help but to think, oh my gosh, is something about to happen to this little boy? I haven't read the book. Is this going to be traumatic after all? You know, and then, you know, even getting getting down to the fact that this is a mother sending her son out alone wearing a hoodie, even, you know, if you want to contextualize it in that way. I, I wonder if if that's something that you considered in the process, you know, this innocence with this underlying feeling that a lot of Black people must have had about something bad around the corner. Yeah, um, that's the first conversation that Andrea and I had at some deli in Manhattan when we first met was, you know, this is a story written in 1962, 1963, um, where there's a black boy in a red hoodie going out into the snow. If we are presenting this in 2020, it was planned at the time, 2021 Mm -hmm. it ended up being, um, we have to provide some way for black audience members to suspend their disbelief because there is so much anxiety wrapped in, you know, any mother letting their child go out into the snow, but very much so specifically a black mother letting a black child out into the snow. And so we needed to create a space within the opera, even though it wasn't in the book, to acknowledge those anxieties. And so she wrote a beautiful 
text called Mama's Misgivings. And that's where that that aria was was born. And so yeah, it's basically the the prayer that I feel like my mom says every time I, I leave the house to this mm-hmm. day. Um, you know, I hope you're happy, I hope you're safe, <laughs> and my eyes are watching this world. And um yeah, uh we, we just we had to we had to have space in the opera for that. Um otherwise it would it would be too much in the realm of fantasy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think for us to really connect to it. Yeah. Yep. My my favorite moment, my favorite musical moment of the opera from your score is when Peter meets the big kids. I love the drums and the and the feel. <laughs> I, I loved it. That, that, that was Wonderful. incredible. Um that that created still maybe not it's as uh serious as you know the the conversations that we have about kids wearing hoodies and and black boys being outside by themselves but there's there's still sort of like an innocent danger there i, I wonder how you uh, approached <laughs> writing scary but not too scary creating conflict in a very innocent story yeah yeah i still i think um a lot of that was really Andrea, you know, um, there's the, the snowball fight happens. We, in, we introduce these big boys that end mm-hmm. up being sort of bullies. Um, but there are these moments where one of them, Timmy, starts trying to support um, Peter, trying to stand up for him instead of being antagonistic towards him. And then the, the other the one bullies, who is black. Right. I, I noticed. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, uh, well, there, there's these, in response to that um, sort of crossing of lines, the other bullies do this, stop sticking up for him. And, you know, there's, there's a comical aspect for that. You know, I, I said it comically um, to, even though that it's a, it's a really intense moment. Um, there, there were, you know, I put built-in sort of slow-mo motions into it to sort mm-hmm. of highlight the the comedic aspect, I think, of snowball fights on an operatic stage um, and really sort of hammed it up a little bit so that it, it didn't take itself too seriously. And I feel like that's something that, you know, I just do as a composer myself, period. Sure. <laughs> Especially in this work that was geared towards families. Um, you know, I could have made it more intense, but you know, I, I think it's it sort of fits the work as it is. I, 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 <laughs> I agree. Like the for nightmare sure. might have the nightmare. Yeah, was... that, yeah, that's what I was gonna. <laughs> well, that's what I was gonna get to next. I mean, <laughs> even in the way that was uh, staged, this moment that is so serious for a child, we did get the opportunity to chuckle when we saw uh, one of the big boys in the in the red costume. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I I wonder what you have to say. Um, about the significance of that scene when it comes to uh, acknowledging some of the anxieties that children have. You know, the idea of all of this snow melting is silly, but in the mind of a child, this is something very serious, something that keeps them tossing and turning all night long. Right, exactly. It's 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 a big emotion. And I, I feel like that idea of, I don't know. I feel like we all experienced a little bit of that anxiety in the last few years with the pandemic. Um, There's this idea of this thing that is so precious, but we, you know, in our anxious stress dreams, we could lose it all, whether it be life and family or the connections or, you know, 
that, that we have or, or we make. Um, but then the idea of waking up the next day and it's, it's still there and we're, it's still just as precious as it was before we went to bed, but rather than wanting to hold it for ourselves, we want to now share it with others. I feel like that was the, the undergirding theme for our telling of this story. Um, and so in order for us to really drive that point home, we had to go to a, a sort of dark place in sure. order to show that it, it can be, it's threatened. Um, uh, and then in the in the response to the, the threat of loss, we respond to that with compassion and opening our hearts and vulnerability and sharing it with others. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know that we've uh, talked a little bit off mic about transforming uh, the opera space in general. I wonder what that looks like for you and how does the snowy day fit into the road toward that vision? Yeah, I think um, I, I, I wasn't even necessarily as aware of of the results of telling this story until one day we were in a workshop. I, I don't remember if it was if it was earlier this year or late last year. Um, and we're in a, a, a workshop in Houston Grand Opera, uh, one of the rehearsal rooms on the sixth floor. And I look around and the majority of people in the room are people of color. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people are asking, <laughs> coming up to the table to ask me and or Andrea, like, are we doing this right? I mean, there was there was a sense of like the people in this room who have power over this space um, look like me, and mm -hmm. it's very rare <laughs> to be in a space um, in which we have ownership over the stories that we're telling or even our own creativity. Um, and that's just from the simple fact that we're telling a black story from our own perspective, from our own lens. Um, and so I feel like just being, being intentional about, I think, I think Andre and I are very intentional about, the importance of telling this black story uh, and wanting to sort of put our best foot forward. There was no dad in the original right. um, book, but he's in a subsequent Ezra Jack Keats books centering on Peter's family. We made sure to bring him in there so as to not, you know, step into that common trope of um, broken homes in the black community. Right. Um, not that <laughs> stories can't be told with with that you know trope but sure. you know we just wanted to we were really intentional about um this the sort of story we wanted to tell and how we wanted to tell it um and i i think over the course of working on it and over the course of seeing it come to life only then did we realize the importance of what this could mean for the future in that if companies want to tell this story they're going to have to do some work to make sure that, um, you know, they're they're engaging with their entire community, that yeah. um, the cast is reflective of the diversity that the story requires. Um, 
Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you'll you'll ne- you'll never hear me diminish the importance and significance of race, certainly in in those spaces. But alongside that conversation, I think there's also the conversation of you know class and and the and the other things that diversity itself won't necessarily cure. I, I wonder if you think. Um, the industry is ready for that conversation, not just creating, you know, an opera for all, but an art form for all, and one that really is for all. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, um, <laughs> I don't even know if I should <laughs> say it out loud, but I will just because <laughs> you're Gary McQueen. Um, uh, but I, I I remember I went to the opening night of a fire shut up in my bones, and um, I, it was I felt so out of place. It was my first time at the Met. Um, wow! And I had I, I was just stunned by the sort of uh, displays of luxury. I just felt so out of place, even though it's a black story. Um, with the black creative, t- I just personally that was just me, and I was in the in the nosebleeds. Um, As Aretha Franklin said, "Gowns, beautiful gowns." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yeah, I, I mean, it was it was great because you know black people were showing out, and it was wonderful. But there was definitely, I felt out of place in a in a class way, in a like I. Is my express suit fancy enough to be in this space? Express, Um, you're doing better than me. (laughs) It's old. It's like barely fits anymore. Anyway, um, it was an investment. (laughs) But but, uh, yeah, I I um I felt out of place, and I I I said if I feel out of place, (laughs) how would my family in Atlanta feel? Um, How would some of you know, my friends and family in, in the neighborhoods that I grew up in, like how how would how would they feel? And so yeah, I think that's something that we have to um address. How is the question, you know? Um yeah, we definitely do have to address the the different barriers to access uh, um, to this art form um that are not only still in existence but sustained like being invested (laughs) into um so i don't know yeah no it's it's a big conversation about thinking about that yeah that's that's a big one (laughs) so you know as as history um has shown at least up until this point there are composers who you know really focus on symphonic works there are composers that we can very much refer to as opera composers has this uh experience made you lean one way or the other are you trying to uh, maintain just a very diverse palette of of creations how how has that impacted uh, your future compositions i i do feel i i do feel as if this um this you know first foray into the opera world um it felt like a homecoming mm. it felt like this this genre i was my voice was perhaps searching for the right space to to sort of thrive, um, and it and it it feels right. I I feel like I've had a penchant for the dramatic. <laughs> um, I've I've had a penchant for big emotions um, that's manifested itself in my orchestral and choral and chamber um, music, um, and it all feels right at home in this space. But this space has 
<laughs> the most barriers, yeah. um, the most baggage. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm thinking about. You know, I, I, I think that narrative is very important to me. Um, have opera being a space where we can hold each other's stories and then in the process, see each other. Um, that's really appealing uh, to me. And so I, I definitely will be creating more in this space. I don't know if, you know, fast forward 50 years, I'll be known as a, an opera composer. Sure. But I do think that I will be a composer that seeks to tell stories for sure, regardless of whatever idiom or genre that I'm working in. Yeah, there's just a, a such an importance around maintaining and preserving and sharing narratives, dialogues, and you know that's that's ultimately how we know about our past here. You know, uh, Eidos, anyway. That that's the only reason we know is because of dialogue and and that sort of thing. I have I have one more um, snow adjacent question for you, but I, I wonder if uh, you can let folks know how uh, they can learn more about you, learn more about. Uh, the works other than the one that uh, most people know and <laughs> and all that. Yeah, um, I I am uh, still working on my website, <laughs> JoelThompsonMusic.com. Um, hopefully, my you know my New Year's resolution is to have it up on New Year's Day. <laughs> okay, um, but uh, yeah, my my full catalog would be there. But um, you know. Um, the, my music sort of living in multiple places right now. Uh, Musicspoke.com has my most um, played work, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, and a number of um, smaller choral works. Um, and uh, some of my music's with Galaxy Music and and uh, Hal Leonard um, under the Exigence label with uh, mm -hmm. Eugene Rogers. Um, so... Yeah, I'm hoping to have it all in one place on my website, <laughs> 2022. <laughs> um, but right now, I'm just trying to write my thesis by tomorrow, which is also my birthday. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so I, I wanted to end with, I, I scoured my records and the internet for some uh, James Baldwin snow quote yes. or, you know, all, and, and, and there's a, there's a lot there, but where I ended up really going in my mind um, is something that was said by Kanye West's father. I'll, I'll read it here. Um, he really? said, I'm, I'm reminded of the first time my children ever got the opportunity to be in snow. And when we walked outside in the snow, they were very fearful in terms of the steps that they would take. What I did was I walked in front of them and I took steps and I said to them, instead of creating your own footprints, walk in the footprints that I've already made. So to that, I wonder if you see yourself and your work as being the embodiment of creating new footprints in the snow, or are there footprints that you are walking in as you move forward in your career? Ah, <laughs> You are a master of these questions. <laughs> so good. Um, no, I'm definitely walking in so many footprints. I mean, um, I'm so glad that Highway One got a um, like a, a production mm -hmm. um, in St. Louis. Um, just there are so many artists who have been black artists who've been trying to you know, create in this space, but denied the opportunity. And Terrence Blanchard has talked about that countlessly because of the recent Met production. And so, um, yeah, I'm definitely walking in some big footprints and I'm hoping that, 
you know, we can in this we can take this moment to look back at those works that we have neglected uh, and and bring them here and recognize the strength and the and the uh, of these works and the the possibilities that they have created in our present moment. Um, but at the same time, I also do see myself as you know. I'm wanting to hold the door open that has been opened for me. Um, uh, and so, you know, still may have opened the door. Um, uh, Graham Dubois may have opened the door. Um, I, am, I am now walking through it and I'm trying to hold the door open for um, uh, other composers as well. So, yeah. <laughs> string quartet there and music of silk sonic you know joel's talking about holding the door open leaving a door and how could i not you know <laughs> use a bit of that music after Good we one. cut the mics we actually spent a little bit of time talking about uh silk sonic and their uh new album basically and, I, and i'm not trying to you know spill no tea or nothing but both joel joel and i agreed that silk sonic need to watch their use of that b word because this is the 21st century mm. and we we need to stop referring to women as bees and mm. that's and that's just it I'll, i will say a lot of curse words uh, most of them uh that is one that i won't say or mm. you know at least work hard not to say i never i never give a hard c not even by myself oh, no. in the shower no. that don't come out of my mouth mm -hmm. um but i think we need to you know what anyway Shout out and thank you to Joel Thompson. It's just really incredible. Always a pleasure uh, to speak with Joel. We, we talk off offline, you know, uh, semi regularly, but you know, to get him on on Triloquy is just such an honor, especially to have the opportunity to talk about something that isn't filled with so much trauma. You know, not to sure. just typecast someone. Well, before we get into the fourth movement, I wonder if you can speak to that. Have you ever been typecast? Well, what? How do you engage the idea of being known for this one thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a while I was getting cast uh, pretty regularly as the funny friend, you know, the the clown, you know. I'm, okay. Yeah, I've got yeah. I've got good comedic timing. I'll I'll toot my own horn on that. Um, but I always enjoy playing the bad guy. Oh, you want to be the villain? I yeah, I could really dig into those roles. That uh, Scott Working, uh, shout out to Scott Working. He wrote a couple bad guy roles for me that I just relished. Oh, if, yeah. if well, you know, we're, we're talking about being uh, typecast. If you were producing a play, how would you, how would you cast me? Am I supposed to be the bad guy? I'm, I'm the, I'm, I'm the good guy, right? I'm, I'm always the good guy <laughs> that, you know, that depends. What's the show? Yeah, it, it, it no, I don't know no. the plays. I don't know the plays. Um, I, I think that we could put you in uh, in sort of a, a political dissident uh, slash romance uh, sort of role, you know, where, uh, you know, a, a person's trying to uh, lead a revolution. Sure. Okay. See, don't be problematic and put me in a romantic role just because you want to see me try to engage a woman or something. <laughs> Did I say woman? I just I mean, said hey, romance. Hey, if the if if you're writing the check, that's good. I will do the best I can. Okay. <laughs> good for you. All right. Um, 
let's get to this fourth movement. Uh, I want us to trill proverbially, I guess, maybe. I, I can't remember if there are any trills in this excerpt with a piece of music um, by uh, David, uh, Joseph, not David, Joseph Schwantner. It's a piece of music called um, New Morning for the World. I've performed the wind ensemble version of this a, a lot, uh, e even going back into uh, college, uh, the orchestral version a couple times. It definitely has that Joseph Schwantner feel about it. Very uh, ruckus at times. Um, this piece of music includes uh, narration that take words from uh, the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And really, really incredible piece of music. If y'all don't know this piece of music, definitely check it out. New Morning for the World by Joseph Schwantner. We're going to listen to a little bit of uh, the finale here, Daybreak from Freedom to get us into the final movement. It's a piece with a lot of nuance, a piece with a lot of dynamic. I mean, some of the, Scott, some of the like more serene, quiet parts of the piece of music will choke you up. It's so beautiful. We, we sideline, and hopefully not anymore, but in my performance experience, we were kind of sidelining Joseph Schwantner, and I don't believe this is a person of color, but being sidelined basically because of the aesthetic. And we, we need mm -hmm. to, as, as we talk about more uh, diverse composers, we need to talk about more diverse sounds. So the next time you're, you're thinking about, pro, we got Black History Month coming up, if you're programming for that or trying to put something together, think about and maybe consider a uh, new morning for the world by Joseph Schwantner. It's a piece of music that I will always champion and I think needs, uh, you know, even, even more attention. Mm -hmm. All right. We're here in the fourth movement, the triloquy movement where I just get to tell y'all how, what I think about some things. So, <laughs> and, and, and Scott does his best to play it safe. <laughs> I will press the button. Maybe I'll have to press the button this week, uh, but we'll see. The first thing I just want to quickly, quickly mention. So, the uh, Society for the Preservation of Western Music was one of the Twitter things that <laughs> was going on this week. The other big moment, viral moment that I was paying attention to dealt with Kamala Harris. She did an interview on, um, I believe this was Good Morning America, uh, NBC. And basically the interviewer is like, all right, so we got Omarion out here. Um jobs are requiring testing. There's a shortage of testing supplies. You can't go into Walgreens and, and buy nothing. What are we supposed to do? You know, what are y'all going to do? And uh, this is what Kamala Harris had to say. Let's take a look. We have 20,000 sites where people can go, and I urge people to, you can Google it or go onto any search engine and find out where free testing and the free testing site is available. But Madam Vice President, the fact that we're still telling people to Google where you can get a test and... Well, you but, but, oh, but come on now. I mean, really, if you if you want to figure out how to get across town to some restaurant you heard is great, you usually do Google to figure out where it is. So that's simply about giving people. They they playing in our faces, Scott. Twitter tow her up, and and this Did is they? including. I didn't see is, the conversation. So this, what was about? this is including Black Twitter. Uh, there are a lot of statistics that I was able to learn, uh, and you know, thirty seven percent of statistics are made up on the spot. But I <laughs> I saw a lot of uh, you know articles and research that 
lay out why those words, at least in their opinion, were so problematic. First and foremost, in the United States of America, uh, it's reported that one in four households do not have the Internet. So we can't, you know, so telling those folks to Google it is inappropriate from the gap. But even uh, from for those of us who do have internet, there are so many other things to consider. Yes, I can get in front of my computer and Google that uh, there are tests available over in Brooklyn Park or something uh, 40, 50 minutes away from here. What good is that gonna do me if I don't have a car or I don't feel comfortable driving in the snow or I got work to do or I got a child to to take care of mm -hmm. what 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 how, how does that help it's and, and you know what it basically led me to tweeting when it comes to any issue I'm going to make the promise I'm not going to tell anyone to just google it I'm not going to I'm not going to do that anymore it's something that I've done in the past especially when it comes to certain conversations of race um I'm going to do better because she needs to do better. I'm sure you're not surprised, but what my question is, do you think, and this is not a political podcast, but do you think uh, the Biden-Harris team is in trouble in 2024? Because on my timeline, we, we are not amused. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm seeing. It certainly looks it, but... I know of past presidents who have been in similar conditions at this point in their presidency, and they turned it around. Sure. Uh, a lot of stuff is yet to happen. Yeah. Especially with the January 6th thing. But let's go back to the, the Googling thing. So is it the disaffected nature, the disconnected right. nature of it is, Precisely. What, is what they're having an, an issue with? See, because here's where I'm coming from. Um, I feel like maybe it's the amount of time I spent alone, or maybe it's just the, the constant barrage of news. Um, I feel like I give a flatline response to almost every news story that comes out. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like, I, I feel like I'm just numb to so much stimulus at this point. What? If uh, so I didn't initially catch that. I, you know, or, or if I did catch it, I wasn't uh, incensed by it. Right. I was right. just like, Pfft. so, so, so what, what I was going to say is what if, that is a tactic. What if that is, you know, uh, the, the 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 way that uh, we're expected to think about voting rights that they up yeah, there arguing yeah. about that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself was here trying to fight for back when he was alive, however many, you know, whatever, 50 years ago or whatever. You know, so I, I think we have to pay attention to all of these little things toward inspiring people. You know, I, I mentioned Maria, uh, Maria Issa at the top, more of the people to actually go and more of the non-racist people, because I know that is what some people will talk about the former president being the people's president. Okay. The non-racist people's president. Mm -hmm. I hope we get there one day. Thoughts and prayers uh, to vice president Kamala Harris, because this is not going to work. You remember being an overnight worker. Imagine Kamala Harris saying, Oh, I mean, just, uh, you can Google it and there's a test about an hour away. You can pick it up at 2 p.m. It, it, it shouldn't be a problem. You know, mm -hmm. people's circumstances are are unique right. out here. People got all sorts of stuff going on. And this is not what we need to be hearing from from the top. Anyway, that that is one. I want to tie it around in closing with this final accident, uh, with this final uh, trill uh, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think we're slowly getting away from 
I have a dream and I have a dream alone. I'm seeing more on my timeline, people quoting the line from the letter from the Birmingham jail, talking about the white moderate being more of a stumbling block than the KKK and anybody else out here. Okay. You aren't new to that party. You are familiar with that letter and you're familiar with that quote from that letter. What do you have to say about what you were initially taught about Martin Luther King Jr., maybe even all the way back in your school days, and understanding this as just one example of his whitewashing, the softening of his message for the sake of others. Mm. What what is what what is what is your perspective on on that arc? Your you know your personal relationship with this with this legendary hero. I would put a lot of the onus on social media because mm. uh, and and I'm gonna. I say brass tacks here uh, on days like this, white, certain white folks love to put up a quote or an inspirational picture or something, mm -hmm. you know, to show some solidarity or I, I don't know. I'm not, or that they're right. That they're certain, down, that they're down. Right. But so many things that have been shared have not been given context and that's important. And I also believe that there are loads of people who, uh, haven't read the full letter from the Birmingham right. jail or they or they'll pull one bit of it that they go, that they can use. Sure. Right. Because one of the things that I'm thinking about in the letter is how he's talking about, uh, a new administration coming in, mm -hmm. making promises and not fulfilling on them. And they keeps hearing the word wait. Yep. So I would encourage you to go towards the end of the letter. If you haven't, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't read the whole thing, yeah. you know, and maybe pull a quote from there. Yeah. Because um, it, it's it's become white. I want to say white noise, but that's not exactly it. Sure. It's just, it's, <laughs> sure. you know, but you know what I'm saying? It's lost its effectiveness from through repetition. Yeah. Sharing the same quote loses the effectiveness, I, I believe. Well, then to that in closing here, I'll share a different one. I've been reading again. Shout out to Caesar. He gifted me this book uh, by Dr. King. Where do we go from here? And I'm reading. Um, just a quick thing. We, we, we have the white moderate, uh, quotation to pull out. Martin Luther King Jr. goes even a little further here. I'm reading it. He says the white liberal must see that the Negro needs not only love, but also justice. It is not enough to say we love Negroes. We have many Negro friends. They must demand justice for Negroes. Love that does not satisfy justice is not love at all. It is merely a sentimental affection, little more than what one would have for a pet. Love at its best is justice concretized. Love is unconditional. It is not conditional upon one staying in his place or watering down his demands in order to be considered respectable. He who contends that he quote, used to love the Negro, but, end quote, did not truly love him in the beginning because his love was conditioned upon the Negro's limited demands for justice. I don't think I need to expound on that because I think we have many, many, many examples of uh, the love of blackness or black people or a black person being conditional. Once they speak up for themselves, once they, once they act on nonviolent direct action, once those things happen, we lose favor and we're removed from certain systems and from certain institutions. If our understanding and learning of Dr. King's legacy has been so drastically whitewashed to where we're pulling out these quotes and learning new things and seeing a new shade and a new side of his activism, if that is true for him, 
Why would that not be true for the so-called classical music industry? There is an entire ecosystem and an entire culture that we have to change and we must change for the sake of its survival. Happy Dr. King day and week, everyone. We'll see y'all next week. (laughs) 